Welcome to The Thinker Podcast with Dr. Owen Anderson, where we talk about how philosophy is for everyone. This is the first in our series, and so I'm going to start off by talking about philosophical mentorship. What exactly is philosophical mentorship? And really, that requires us knowing what is philosophy. I I think we know a lot about other kinds of mentorship, or at least we have a vague awareness of maybe uh, counseling or being mentored in a, a field of work, a skill. So if our impression is that philosophy is not really a skill that's needed, then we would wonder, why do I need to be mentored in philosophy? So that's part of the uh, burden of proof on the philosopher. The philosopher has to show, hey, uh, uh, this is something that's important to do, and it's helpful for all of life. So what is philosophical mentorship? I want to think about it first in terms of the kinds of questions or problems philosophy deals with. I call these the most basic or the most fundamental questions, maybe the most foundational questions. So in that sense, this is why philosophy would be for everyone, is that everyone deals with those kinds of questions. Questions of value, like what is valuable in life? What should I do with my life? What is the purpose and meaning of life? What gives life meaning? And what kinds of things are real? What isn't real? The big one, obviously, that people, people wrestle with is, is God real? Is there anything greater than the universe, or is it, is it? Where did the universe come from? And behind those kinds of questions are questions about knowledge and authority. How do I know anything? What authority will settle those problems or, or answer those questions? How do we know anything? So these are some questions that we all face, and maybe we, we face them at different times of life. There's especially a formative early time of life where we might first begin to ask those questions. And then if we haven't found answers, we might settle down into the position called skepticism and say, well, I guess we really just can't know. Everyone has tried. No one has figured it out yet. And so we just have to deal with that and, and go through the rest of life. Or we might, we might become what is called a fideist. And we'll say, uh, we can't really know, but you have to believe in something and we'll pick something, something that's our cause. This will be what gives my life purpose, even though I don't know if it's real or not. Well, I'd like to take us back to that earlier stage. We'll call it the pre-skeptic stage. You, you, you're a pre-skeptic in the sense that you, you still believe you can know, you still can ask questions, and then you don't find answers, so you become a skeptic. And in philosophical mentorship, we want to go back to that previous stage and, and raise a question about that. Is that true that we can't know? Uh, how would we know that? and begin to try to answer these foundational questions. Now, that will require learning to think critically, which is another important part of philosophy, critical thinking. And critical thinking does not mean uh, negative thinking, like when you, you're cr- being a critic, you're criticizing someone and telling them they didn't do a very good job. Uh, maybe people think of that as philosophical mentorship. Go somewhere to be told you're not doing very well. No, but uh, philosophy means you are... Uh, thinking critically, you're, you're identifying assumptions and you know how to test them for meaning. So what are the assumptions in, in a, a, a certain view of the meaning of life? How would you be able to test them for meaning? Someone says, uh, they don't believe in God because no one has seen God. They've looked around, they've checked out in space, and no one out there is called God. So they don't believe in God. Well, the assumption there is that God can be seen. 
which is called empiricism, that knowledge is from experience. That's an example of learning to critically think by identifying assumptions. I'll also call this thinking presuppositionally, learning to identify your presuppositions. And we would need to learn to do that if we're going to solve other problems. You might think about it, really, this is kind of a general truth in any discipline. In uh, math, you're thrown into calculus and you're going to be asked to do differential equations. Well, that assumes you know a number of other things before you come to differential equations. Imagine this person doesn't know how to do arithmetic. Well, they won't do very well on differential equations then. So that's what it means to think presuppositionally. We need to deal with the most basic things first. And oftentimes in human disagreements, they jump right into the more difficult things first. And those difficult things have assumptions that need to be addressed. So critical thinking, learning how to think critically, identifying our own assumptions. Another part of doing philosophy is this, love. In philosophy, we can give advice on love. Now, uh, this isn't quite dating advice, although I do suppose that would be a good app. Uh, SingleLonelyPhilosophers.com. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll check for the domain. Yeah. yeah my, <laughs> uh, this, this is my producer, James, and that got a smile out of him. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll check GoDaddy, see if it's available. Yeah. Single Lonely philo- or PhilosophersLookingForFun.com. So, well, that, that's called romantic love. Hopefully it's that. Maybe it's more like desires of other kinds. But love is in the very word of philosophy, the love of philosophy, the love of wisdom. How do you know if you love wisdom? It's, it's kind of something I, th- I think anybody, maybe 99% of people would want to say they love wisdom. With, have you encountered anyone, James, who might say, no, I don't want to? Like a goth person or something? Yeah, yeah, maybe. And Philosophers for Love is available for a dollar. Like really? We, we, could, cool. we could start our own dating app and probably like, because there's lots of people looking for the love of wisdom, right? Right, right. That's, well, that's, that's, what a, they, that's a built-in assumption that might revolve some critical thinking, right? <laughs> I, I think what will happen is that people will uh, go there for reasons that we weren't intending. Oh, right? no. Yeah, the kind Bad of Bad marketing? The kind of love they're looking for. Uh, That's what you philosophers do, though. You trick us on words to make us think deeper about things. Yeah, do a wordplay. Yeah. Right, so how how do you know? I I was saying uh, most people probably think that they love wisdom, and even the person who's a goth, they have their own kind of wisdom that they they live by. Sure. But that means that you're you're easily fooled about this. You could be fooling yourself into thinking you love wisdom and you really don't. So the love of wisdom is all in the, in the uh, outcome. It's like uh, uh, what persons do speaks louder than what they say, right? So does the person show that they'd really love wisdom? That's where you can tell. And that kind of gets us into the next piece of philosophical mentorship, what I'll call the existential application. I don't know if you've ever met someone like this, James, but there are people who are in academics, and they like to be able to take part in heady conversations. It's kind of how they get their uh, excitement in life. Like some people, maybe it's with playing a sport. Other people do kayaking. And there's these people, and they're called academics, and they really get excited about being able to use lingo that no one knows and cite the most recent articles. Have you noticed that? Yeah, yeah. I I know a few people in academia, and... uh, Remember that when I was in college. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Yeah, and I'm not saying anything about it one way or the other, good or bad, just that that isn't the same as applying it to your life. So are you able to make application? And I think this is where philosophical mentorship especially comes in as different than just doing a philosophy class. Yeah. A lot of what I just said, you might say, look, that sounds just kind of like taking a philosophy class. Yes, but when we get to this point existential application, how are you doing in actually pursuing what is good? And that's where you'll see with these persons, uh, many times you might say, well, they're no different than anyone else. They have the same exact troubles as everyone else. They're not really benefiting from philosophy any more than anyone else. So how how do we actually apply this to our lives? Here's an example. Have you ever heard of weakness of the will? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to use James as my Socratic dialogue uh, partner here. And weakness of the will means you, you, you say something like this, I know what is good to do, but I just can't do it. It's yeah. so common. I mean, right? People say it all the time, and maybe you've experienced something like that. Yeah, definitely. And you say, yeah, I knew, I knew I shouldn't have done this, or uh, I wish I could do this, but I just don't have enough willpower. Right. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I, I've known people that you know struggle with addictions and yeah. different things like that too, to where they've wanted to act one way and then been kind of stuck mentally, yeah. right? Doing doing something else. Yeah. Now here, here's. Let me see if this will shock you. There is no such thing as weakness of the will. Hmm. So that you're never you're misunderstanding your own experience when you say that. I knew I shouldn't have done it. My response would be, No, you didn't. Oh, that's the problem. Yeah. So if you would have known, you wouldn't have done it. Precisely. Yeah. So it's not okay. So you, our knowledge you, drives our dr- drives our will. It's a right. Yeah. It's a misuse of the word knowledge. Hmm. I had a nagging thought in my mind that and my I mom do told it. me not to do yeah, that. Yeah, but that's life. not knowledge. Okay. Right. Or I, I heard my doctor's voice in my head who said, "Don't do this. It's bad for your health," and I didn't listen to it. That's not knowledge. Okay. So it's precisely because you didn't have knowledge that you behaved in that way. And if you had knowledge, that would be what transforms you. Hmm. But let me anticipate a couple objections. People are quick to attack poor knowledge. (laughs) Uh, I don't mean uh, poverty knowledge. I mean, uh, we should feel bad for knowledge. We We should defend knowledge and not allow them to do this. But they'll say, no, no, I know a lot of things and it didn't transform me. Right, you, you might know a lot of facts, as, as if you're, you're one of the guys at Cheers and you know a bunch of facts about the Red Sox. I guess that's a baseball team or something. Yeah. And, and they go there to Cheers and they debate about the Red Sox. And, it's in Boston where, uh, where the bar is. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. And they're still there drinking themselves into a stupor. So mm. they have knowledge. It's like knowing about things. Yeah, about things and specifically about trivia. It's right. called trivia. Okay. And it didn't help you out. And you know what? Here's a here's a crazy thing: is someone might be willing to to say, "Yeah, sports trivia. That's obvious." Did you know they can make theology into trivia? I have a degree in religious studies, so I've uh, I've experienced it. Yeah. So they can say, "I know all kinds of things about what people say about God, right?" And their life is in shambles. It doesn't impact the person yeah, at all. It hasn't changed them at all. It's not transformative. So they don't actually have the relevant kind of knowledge, which is what we want to do in philosophical mentorship. That's what we want to get back to. Hmm. What, is, what is it that would be transformative? If you knew the truth, then you would be set free. 
I'm going to say that's a given. I'm not going to doubt that. If you come along and you say, no, I know the truth and I'm not set free, then I either have to say you're wrong or that sentence is wrong and I think you're wrong. Could it be that you know about it, but you just haven't applied it to your life yet? Or uh, you're saying that the application of not applying it means you actually yeah. didn't understand it? You don't even understand it, yeah. Wow. So let's run through some examples maybe, and, and this is where uh, also James can help us think about uh, how mentorship can, can help us. You mentioned addictions. Yeah. These are common examples. And people could have a gambling addiction, an alcohol addiction, narcotic addiction, a food addiction, a sex addiction. Sure. And there's a kind of impulse control that they don't have. Uh, and so they might say, look, I, I know I shouldn't gamble. I know my finances are on the edge of bankruptcy, but I can't stop myself. Well, what's going on now with this person? Is it true they can't stop themselves? Well, then they're, it's as if they're kind of a zombie or something. Right. Or are they being, that's a hyperbole. They can stop themselves. It's just really hard. Well, they don't know how. They, they haven't experienced like walking through that sensation of wanting to gamble and then learning a different way of dealing with that impulse of thought. Yeah. You know? Well, well let's think about that. They don't know how. Do they not know how to walk? Like they're walking into the casino Right. Do they also know how to walk the other direction? Like their walking skills are one directional. Yeah. So, so in other words, we don't want, what often is going on is we're providing ourselves with excuses. Yeah. I, say, I just, no one's ever taught me how to say no. Well, you're an adult. So I used to be addicted to pizza. Yeah. It was a pretty serious addiction. Pizzas? Yeah, that's a hard one. Yeah, Peter Piper pizza too. Yeah. Pretty low, low, <laughs> yeah, low class pizza cardboard too. Cardboard with some cheese on top. Yeah. I mean, I, I just didn't, I didn't know. Now I'm being careful <laughs> how I use the word knowledge. Yeah. But, well, um, and now, now since you're running, you know, like every <laughs> slice of pizza is like two more miles. So you're just saying it's not worth it. But it's probably like, it's probably like knowledge too. Once you get it going for a while, it turns your uh, metabolism into machine. So I can eat some pizza now. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's not a bit as big of a deal for you. Right. Right. Well, so we're using, I'm just using a hypothetical example of, of gambling, but it could apply to any of them, which is that insofar as I'm making a choice, I can choose one of the other, one of the two options. Yeah. Walk into the casino, walk out of the casino. You just don't want to. You don't want to do it. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm actually, even though my, psych, my, my inner mental state might not be here, what I'm showing with my choices, I think it's better to, in this hypothetical example, gamble than to not gamble. Now, I might be able to tell you I'll probably lose, in which case I'll have hardships, but I also might win. And so I have, you know, I have some hope in going in there and, and yeah. doing roulette. So <clears throat> that reveals a lack of understanding. Yeah, that, that, would, that would really challenge a lot of people's view of addiction too, right? So yeah. like, um, you know, I, I've worked with some people that have some pizza and gambling addictions and past jobs. And, you know, there's a, there's a view that like people are just kind of born that way. Mm -hmm. Like maybe with a predisposition, but almost like they're no longer in control as they're making those choices. Yeah. So well, let's say well, that, let's that's say kind of the are. model for alcohol, right? Like, yeah. if an alcoholic, like when you're when you don't have alcohol in your body, then you have a kind of a control. But as soon as you put a little bit in, you lose control. Yeah, it's interesting. Let, let, well, I'm not denying that. So I don't want to suggest that there's no predisposition to certain behaviors, and it could be a genetic one, or it could be a learned predisposition in early childhood. Yeah, both. Right. I'm not talking yeah. at that level, and I'm not an expert in those things. I'm not a, a psychiatrist, psychologist, or medical doctor, but I'm a, a doctor of philosophy. And so the level I'm looking at it is this. If it's a choice you're making, 
then you can choose either A or B. If there is no choice, if you're so overridden by one of those other considerations, then it isn't a moral issue anymore, hmm. right? You don't, you don't have the ability to, do, to, to choose. Uh, and so it's sort of like my heart beating. It, it's just predisposed to do that. That's what it does. I, I can't choose otherwise. I, I guess you could say I could interrupt it somehow. Like, right. But, but I mean, under, I can't think in my mind beat faster, and it does. I have to do certain things to make it beat faster. Yeah. So if, if that's what these addictions are like and the weakness of the will, then it's not really a moral issue anymore. Do you think it's a moral issue? Uh, well, that's a good question. Uh, is, a, is a gambling addiction. We're picking that one. Yeah. Not to pick on anybody. It seems just, to be, right? Uh, if it's not a moral issue, if you're just harming yourself, then you might tell people, hey, just lock my front door. Don't let me out of the house. I can't control myself, right? You, you lose certain freedoms because you're no longer able to operate rationally. Yeah. And there's lots of ways that happens in life where someone says, yeah, I, I, I have to lose some freedoms because I, I'm not being rational. Yeah. But insofar as you are in control of yourself, then you could choose one or the other. And, and, and narrow it down to two options. Sometimes in life, there's a lot more than two options. But you can say, yeah, I'm going to walk just like I walked in. I can walk straight back out. Yeah. Right? Just like I picked up the bottle, I can set the bottle back down. But I think you put the nail on the head, which is uh, I don't want to. Yeah. So then you can run through this. Maybe play, play devil's advocate with me here uh, with the addiction. I know I shouldn't put my mortgage on number 12, roulette. Right. But I did. Because I have a system. Yeah, right. <laughs> it hasn't hit 12 for like a day. So it's going to hit 12. I've watched it. Yeah. Eventually, it's got to get there. Yep. Keeps hitting double zero, though. Yep. <laughs> so it's got to hit 12 eventually. Now, that reveals you don't understand the roulette table because it doesn't right. have to hit 12 ever. Ever. <laughs> uh, it could just keep going and going. It could just be red forever because people do that with red and black. And they could say, I've watched people do it's it. It's got to yep. hit black. And no, it doesn't. It can keep yep. going. So it shows you don't understand. And then it also reveals that you don't understand why gambling your mortgage is a problem. Right. Say, well, why is this a problem? I don't think the person could explain that to you. I might lose, but then why is it on the table? Pick it off the table if you think you're going to lose. Well, I might win also. Right? So they don't, don't really see what's going on. Yeah. There's priorities in my expense, expenses. Now, I'm giving pragmatic answers to why not to put your mortgage down. But those aren't really even getting to it. Because behind that is a certain perception of the good life. That's what they really don't understand. Why would you want, let's see, what, what does it do? If it hits 12, you, you multiply your money by 36. So there's one through 36, and there's two, a zero and a double zero for right. the house. So it's really, there's 38 possibilities, but the house only pays out 36. That covers their side of things. So you say, look, uh, I want more money. Well, why? I mean, the way to get more money is by working. I know, but I want more money without working. Now, incidentally, you put a lot of time into studying roulette, so you have been working to get this money, right? But I don't want to do an outside job. You know, there are lots of inside jobs too, right? But, want to study numbers, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just want to, I just want, so it's sort of like, uh, yeah, I want more money without working. Right. Uh, and I go to this place, they give me free alcohol while I gamble, and I have fun. So I want to make money by having fun. Yeah. So here, this is where it really comes back to a view of the good life. 
that that's the good life. Interesting, the views that where we avoid work, what ends up happening after that, right? Yeah, right. Well, and, and viewing work as a hardship. Yeah. That, that I don't want to have to work. Other people work. I'm better than them, I guess. I don't have to commit my days to that. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that that's, that's what's going on here is there's a view of the good life, and your putting your mortgage on the table shows that you don't understand the good life. Not just like practical things like you don't understand budgeting. Right. right? But it, that's true too, maybe. But really, it's the good life. You don't understand what is a good life. And that's what philosophy goes over. And that's coming back around. We were underneath existential application. How does failing to know the good reverberate through a person's life? It's, it's interesting too, because, you know, if you're not someone who struggles with addiction or gambling or alcohol or some sort of vice, you might think that you can get away with some of these other yeah. misunderstandings of the good life and it won't affect Doesn't you as much. You, right. You know, it's, that probably would be a pretty common response. You know, yeah. I could see that. Like, my life's pretty good. Like, why, why would I need this? Yeah. You know? Yeah, right. So, so when you say, well, pretty good. What's right. good about it? I don't suffer very much. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so suffer, not suffering is a good life. No, there's animal life that doesn't suffer, right? Vegetables don't suffer. Yeah. We could put someone to a vegetative state and they're not suffering anymore. That's a good life. Yeah. I mean, most people would say that's not a meaningful life. Yeah, it's not, not meaningful. Um, now, so we, I'm glad you brought up other components of addiction, right? There's, there's predispositions, family predispositions or genetics or early childhood training. Again, not suggesting there aren't those things. Sure. But what we're looking at is a different dimension. There's that, those things, and there's more that people don't have to consider. And the and more that people don't have to consider is that this is probably a reflection of the person's, or it is a reflection of the person's view of the good life. So yeah, think about yeah. substance abuse. I mean, isn't substance abuse tied into not suffering? Yeah, for sure. Um, I thought it was really, really powerful. You said if someone believes something, like if they believe what was true about reality, that might impact their actions. Yeah. And what most people that I've experienced and worked with and know that have struggled with alcohol or drug addiction have had a different view of that. And then it changed their mind, which then changed their actions, right? Yeah. Before, like, you know, a person who's 30 days sober would be like, 30 days ago, I never thought I could quit. Yeah. Well, it happened. Yeah. Well, something changed in his thinking. Yeah. Sometimes it's consequences, but even in that consequence, some people keep going down, right? Yeah. The consequences aren't always enough. So it's right. It's a certain change about it's believed to be true. And I think I think for example, in first in the 12 steps is the first one is taking responsibility. Yeah. Which is what I started off here saying. Yep. You're doing it. You're stepping into the casino. You can also step out of the casino. So yep. so that's not what I'm suggesting in that sense is you might recognize that and say, yeah, that's that's right. Just to say this is not like off the uh, crazy stuff way out there, right? This is right. Like people realize you need to take responsibility. But what I'm adding in, and I'm not sure that's done there, is getting back to your view of what a good life is. Yeah. And, and my suspicion is that most of the time it has to do with uh, avoiding suffering. I think, I think um, that, that gets at a lot of addictions, right? People don't if, know how to process suffering. They don't right, know how to yeah. interpret it. Depression, self-medicating for depression yeah, or anxiety. For sure. Or troubled situations in life. I don't want to deal with this, so I'd rather check out. Yeah. Uh, so if you, change, if, you're, if you realize why suffering is necessary, you wouldn't want to check out of it anymore. Right. You'd want to go into it and say, this is great. This is how I learned things. So just that change can happen so quickly, and it, it affects your entire way of thinking about the world. And... You've seen maybe pictures where they do like these optical illusions. If you look at them, they all of a sudden switch to be a different angle. Yeah. 
It's yep. kind of like that, right? Just yep. all of a sudden switches. That, that, that's a, this is a, probably a bad example. Well, it's not a bad example, but um, for me, running has been one of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't like to run, and um, I wasn't good at it. And someone suggested running for discipline, for extra, well, yeah. a lot of different reasons. And in doing it, um, there's a reflection that comes, like processing thoughts and thinking yeah. and understanding. It's very contemplative time. Yeah, through that's suffering, right. you know, and um, that's kind of how I look at it. Right. That I like to run because it's suffering and I'm getting to work things out that right. otherwise I wouldn't. So it's not like I'm not thinking. It's forcing me to think. Yep. Exactly. So so good. We're kind of coming to the end now of our, our first podcast here. Uh, the Thinker Podcast with Dr. Owen Anderson. I want to thank James for giving us some good interaction. As we've been thinking about what is it to be mentored in philosophy, and especially we are ending with ex- the existential application of doing philosophy to our lives. So thank you for joining me, and I look forward to being with you again soon.